you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Church, if you have a Bible or a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a copy in the back of your pews. On page 519 is where our text will be this morning. Let's hear the Word of the Lord together. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which, is, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled answered, man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone else goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got up, got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. And now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who has been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that, anything, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing this, these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I uh, just, again, just been reflecting on this last night. I enjoyed a night after all the work yesterday and just reflecting on the goodness of God. We've come a long way since uh, meeting in the little library at Lancaster Christian Academy five years ago. About 35 or 40 of us would gather in there on a regular week, and uh, we were moving bookshelves around and conference tables just to make a little space there. If you were there, you know. And we had these really ridiculous faux slat walls that we put up just to try to make the space look a little more worshipful. Boy, we have come a long way, church. Jordan can remember being the only instrument, uh, instru instrumentalist on most weeks. And I know he's thankful to have such a vibrant and competent and well-gifted team behind him now. Church, I love you. I, I couldn't imagine doing this anywhere else. I've never in my life thought I'd ever serve in a place that I would find so much joy. And I certainly believe that's the case here. If you're a guest in this church this morning, you have walked into a special place. And I'm not trying to give a sales pitch to you. I'm just not. Find out for yourself. That's all you have to do. Just keep showing up and keep finding out for yourself because I promise you, you'll find the same thing that we found here. Okay, John chapter 5. There's often some folklore that gets attributed to the teachings of the Bible. You probably know what I'm talking about. Things that people think are in the Bible that are actually not in the Bible at all. In a recent street interview by the guys at White Horse Inn, based out of California, Michael Horton, if you know who I'm talking about, wonderful ministry. They, they did some 
street interviews with people on the, on the street, passerbys, asking them this one question. And here it is. What are some of the main truths that you believe is taught in the Bible? What are some of the main truths that you believe are taught in the Bible? And here are some of the answers. They're not going to shock many of us in here this morning. Well, maybe they will. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, cleanliness is next to godliness. There are a lot of folks who believe that's actually in the Bible. My mom wishes that was in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, another one is, this too shall pass. And you may think, well, that sounds biblical. Um, actually, it's not. We hear it in the movies a lot, but it's actually a, a, a Persian wisdom, Babylonian wisdom saying. So it's actually not in the Bible either. Here's one that will really mess us up. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Believe it or not, that's not in the Bible. Um, we can get into some conversations about that, but that's actually not in the Bible either. Uh, money is the root of all evil. Um, no, money is the root of all sorts of wrongs and evils, but it's not the root of all evil. That's not true. So yeah, then these statements are uniquely in the Bible, but I guess we could probably, if we want to be generous and be um, about these statements, there, there, there's, some, there's some truth to these things. We can, we can at least say that. But the one that's the most disturbing, that, that, that is the most popular statement that people tend to give back is this. God helps those who help themselves. Oh, I got an amen on that one, right? You can't be in Grace Church and know that we're going to have a problem with that statement. And the reason why is because we tend to think the Bible is about like a co-piloting relationship with God. We're like, okay, God does his thing and I do my thing. And so long as I'm kind of connected to my co-pilot, I'm not going to really go off the cliff somewhere. That's just not in the Bible. Everyone has heard this common colloquium, but it's just not in the Bible. Um, in fact, no such theme even exists in the Bible. The Bible actually goes against this idea with more of God helps those who are weak. God helps those who are unable to help themselves. That's the Bible's message. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I bring our attention to that this morning because in chapter 5, uh, John chapter 4, we're kind of making a transition. And in this transition, we're going to be looking at the third sign that John uses to show us more of who Jesus is. And the main idea that John will want to show us, because this is connected to what happens in his relationship with the Jewish leaders, what he wants to show us is that Jesus draws near to those who don't seek to earn their righteous standing before God with copious rulemaking um, pertaining to the law, but rather God helps those, Jesus draws near, draws near to those who, are, who recognize their neediness and rely on Christ alone for new life. And as we look at this miracle this morning, where Jesus heals this paralytic next to the, this pool, it reveals something to us, and we're going to have to just really be honest about it. It reveals how deeply flawed we are, how deeply sinful we are, how deeply unaware of our sinfulness we actually are. It reveals the deep spiritual infirmity of our hearts that prevents us from actually living lives not only of purpose, but lives that are centered on the glory of God. If we want to live for the glory of God, the main way we do that is going to God as needy and weak people, knowing that only He meets our needs there at the cross and through His resurrection. 
It is so fundamental to the, to the nature of what it means to be Christian that when we bypass that or we give kind of passing glance at these things that we say we believe, but it doesn't become intimately wed with who we are, we actually in some ways fail to be all that God wants his church and his people to be. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we look at this study of paralytic, I want us to notice this. This is our sermon summary, our sermon in a sentence. The good news of Jesus heals the infirmity of our defiant and self-interested hearts. Let me say that again. Jesus heals the infirmity, and what is it? Of our self, our defiant and self-interested hearts, and enables us to live a life for the glory of God. We're going to look at this a little differently. Typically, I go through the text, we draw some applications, we go through the text. This morning, what we're going to do is we're actually just going to look through the text first under three headings, and then we're going to kind of really kind of finish up with some really, hopefully, some heart-piercing application questions. Okay? So we're just going to walk through this text. The first heading that I want us to take notice of is this. If you want to follow along, you can write your notes in a bulletin if you wish. The misery that sin has brought into the world. That's the first thing I want us to notice about what's going on here. This is, this is what we see in these first four verses. Jesus comes to this place in Jerusalem, goes in through the Sheep Gate, and it's just undeniable the effects of sin on the world. These people who are in desperate situations. And we all know this. This is fundamental to what we believe as Christians. That brokenness, sin, disease, suffering is all, some level, running downhill from the fall. It's just what we believe. We'll talk about that here more in just a second. And so when you, one of the observations I want us to take in these first couple of verses is just how pathetic the world is that's transpired by sin. That sounds hard, but it is. The world is in a pathetic, and I don't mean that in a down kind of way. I mean, it's just we are in a desperate situation. That's what we mean. And so Jesus is traveling back to Jerusalem for a festival, and this man's constantly standing on the move. He just barely gets into, you know, Nazareth and, and Galilee, and now all of a sudden he's hopping back down to Jerusalem for a festival. We're not told what festival it is, but he enters into this sheep gate, and um, he sees these people who are desperately want healing for their ailments, for their maladies, for their infirmities. They believed that something special happened a few times a year where angels would stir up the waters. You might call this like a hot spring. And then if you got into the hot spring, it would uh, give you some type of naturopathic kinds of benefits from remedies. Not that that's a bad thing. In fact, that, that, thing is, that kind of stuff is very popular today all over the world. People flock to hot springs and they visit them globally for these kinds of purposes. And it's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it's not enough. And so Jesus puts his eye on one particular individual, it says here, 38 years he's been in his situation. Now let's just think about 38 years for a moment. It's highly unlikely that in that 38 years, like his, it's, it's not like his parents said, oh, he's, he's a paralytic, so we need to put him by the pool by himself as a baby or as a toddler. He probably ended up by that pool maybe when he was a teenager or a young adult. So this man's probably 50 or 60 years old. But the question that should be running through our brains right now is, so then why does, Jesus, why does John give us this particular story? He's, he's always very intentional about the, the stories, the healings, the miracles that Jesus is doing in his gospel. Well, it's this. John wants to show you and I, his readers, through this story, the picture of not just desperation in these particular individuals, but the entirety of mankind's helplessness and sin. 
That's what he wants to see. I want you to start like this is we may not have physical maladies in here, but each one of us have spiritualities. And this is what Jesus is going to do with this man. He's going to reveal to him something deeper than just his own issues of not being able to walk. Now, when we say that we are weak and helpless, that's the word there in in my version. It says that um, he was unable or disabled. It actually means impotent or, or, or powerless or feeble. Now, when we say that, I want to make sure that we're clear about a couple of things. We're not talking about uh, helpless or unable in an absolute sense. That's not what believers believe. It's not what we believe about the Bible. But what we mean by that is, is there's two kind of cardinal, Protestant, Baptist doctrines that kind of run under all this, if you will. Protestant doctrines run under original sin and total depravity. And the reason why that's important to know that, that in that framework is because these doctrines inform what we mean by helpless. Because sometimes if we're not careful, we take helpless and we say, oh, well, that means we're a victim and therefore we're off the hook. I'm going to talk about that a bit this morning. But that's not what we mean by helpless. Because what happens is we look at original sin and we go, oh, well, that's a problem. So that means Adam and Eve are on the hook for my sin. So therefore, I'm really just, uh, I'm just a victim to what's been kind of unfolding throughout generations. And that's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Protestant doctrine teaches either. We're not victims to Adam and Eve's failures. Rather, it's not an event that we are looking at. It's actually a condition that by birth we have fallen into sin and we have corrupt natures. And by extension, we're not able to believe God's word like we should. And again, this doesn't mean that we're unable to obey in in some absolute sense, but that whatever levels of obedience we have, it's tainted. It's corrupt. It it, it just won't do. And that's where we get into this whole idea of total depravity and why that supplements our understanding of sin. Because total depravity actually says the opposite. I'm sorry, sorry, it it helps us. It, It answers the question, to what extent are we sinful? Well, we're sinful... Thoroughly, comprehensively, totally. Again, doesn't mean that we're not capable of good. It doesn't mean that we are sinful as we could be. But what it does mean is that the reason for the conflict between us and God is because we're radically unaware of sin in our lives and its effects without God's gracious intervention. Isaiah 64 gives us at least a sampling of what the Bible teaches about the extent of our sinfulness. I'm just going to read verse 6. You've probably heard it in other ways, but I'm going to read it from my version. All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted or a dirty garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. If you've heard it another way, or Paul says it in a, in a, in a shorter, more pithier way, All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to the Lord. You've probably heard it put like that. The reason we're going there this morning is because this is what John wants to show us through the paralytic's life. Because when we see the conflicts unfold with Jesus and the Jews and the leaders there, it's because this is what's driving everything under it. They can't see what Jesus has actually come to do, so therefore Jesus looks like a, a dirty old lawbreaker. When in reality, he's not. He's the law keeper. He's the only law keeper. He's the only one who actually lives fully righteously before God. And so this story of the paralytic is meant to show us the depth of our corrupt nature and the extent of sin's effects on our lives. 
That's the first heading I want us to wrestle with here in this first part. The second thing is, there's a question. Because Jesus sees this unfolding, and, and he sees this, and his, you know, obviously his heart of compassion is welling up, and he sees this man have been here for 38 years, a long time, and he asks him a question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Now, maybe you're like me, and you go, that sounds like an absolutely absurd question. Of course this man wants to be healed. He's right there at the pool where he believes that if he can just get in the pool, if someone will just help him get in there, then everything's going to be good. Of course this man wants to be healed. So that means that there's something else in Jesus' question that we need to wrestle with. The real issue that Jesus is revealing about this man, and of course all of mankind, as we've already noted, is in the question. And it's this. You and I, whether we're outside of Christ, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I hope that you see a picture of it before you leave. But if you're, even if you're a believer and you're still wrestling with sin, you and I are oftentimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, too satisfied with the state of our sinful inertia. And let me, say, let me break that down a little bit. In other words, we don't like sin and its effects, but we get really comfortable in it, so therefore we keep reproducing the same things. We keep doing the same things. We keep allowing sin's effects, and it keeps us from doing the things and using the spiritual remedies that God has given to His church so that we might live with freedom, that we might actually see spiritual health in our lives in some capacity. I said it earlier, and, and, and it's a word that's unfortunately a, a, somewhat of a triggering word, but what is happening in all this is that we kind of feel like we're victims to our sinful dispositions, and therefore we justify it. Okay? So we do what this man does. What does he do? And Jesus says, well, I would love to be healed, but uh, I get here and then someone jumps in ahead of me. I don't have any of the right help. And so what is he doing? He's blame shifting, right? The fault's on someone else in my life. He's learned to depend for his needs on earthly realities or earthly relationships. And in some sense, he's probably quite comfortable where he is. I wonder if that can be said of any of us in here this morning. We're just kind of comfortable in our sin. Comfortable in, you know, I, I'm, I'm not completely out of it yet, so I can just kind of endure it. When I, when I worked for, as a manager for a grocery store chain before I went to college a few years, about, uh, well, actually more than that, about 20-some years ago, um, I was a manager, and we, I worked in a, par, a store in a part of town in Roanoke that was not really the best part of town, and so we had little things we had to watch out for, for how people shoplifted. And I won't give you the whole story, but they had these little, little very, um, very uh, ways in which they would try to sh like hide the things they were trying to steal inside their buggy and whatever else, their shopping cart. If you say shopping cart, it's fine. If you say buggy, it's fine. Some of you will be offended by that. It's okay. Um, but anyway, they, they would take hundreds of dollars of meat, put them inside, and then barricade it with all the food around it so, they, so that they would somehow know the be able to, like, know, people won't know what they're up to. Or they'd take a bunch of alcohol and do the same thing. And so then they would kind of casually walk through the store. And we kind of knew how to look, what to look for when we saw these things. And then, um, and, then, and then when no one's looking, they dart out the door and like literally ride the cart down the, down the parking lot until they could just get to the end. And they would grab whatever they could out of the parking lot while they were running across the street. This happened so many times, it's not even funny. Well, one such day, uh, a guy was doing this and we... We, we were taking notice of him, and we had all of us kind of watching what he was doing. And he got to the front of the store, 
and he caught my eye. He looked right in my eye as if to look at me and go, guess what I'm about to do? And as soon as he caught my eye, two seconds later, he just bolts right out the door. So we and me, the assistant manager, run out the door. We're chasing him through the parking lot, doing things that are highly like, you know, lethal weapon-like, apparently. And, uh, you know, so we're like, we think when we're like, you know, secret agents or something, we're chasing him through the parking lot. Guy gets down there, pulls out whatever he can. He's running off through the field, and he then starts dropping all the meat, and he's just by himself. And then he takes a U-turn, and we were like, what's he doing? He's taking a U-turn, and he starts running right back towards us in the store. Not sure why he's doing that. Well, as soon as he gets to us, he tries to kind of dodge us somewhat, and we end up tackling him, put him on the ground, and, um, and then an off-duty police officer comes and helps us out until the regular police gets there. Well, here's what we found out that day. This guy's a repeat offender. In fact, he does it in all of our stores, is what he said. We've arrested this guy about, about once a week, we arrest this guy, so he goes back to jail. And the reason why is because he doesn't know how to live life outside of his sin, outside of his brokenness, and he wants someone else to support that. And it's a sad situation he finds himself in. But here's the thing, guys. It's not just that that should grab our attention. I'm a counselor, too, and I see the exact same thing in counseling. People come in, they want help for their situation, we dig down and find the real problem, and yet when we find the real problem, they develop a crutch and they don't really want freedom from that sin from that brokenness they don't want to not be able to blame their mom and dad for the hurt that they've been living with in their adulthood they don't want to be able to uh, give up their self-righteous superior superior post over their spouse who perhaps has hurt them or been unfaithful to them i see it all the time and so it's not it's easy to kind of pick on the guys in the shopping shoplifters but it's reality of all of us in some capacity if we're not aware of it, if we're not allowing the gospel to get, penetrate and show us um, God's grace through all these things. We may not like the sinful chains of our lives, but we become so intimately wed with our natures that when grace is revealed and extends and is extended to us, it's almost impossible for us to envision a life without these things, these codependencies in our life and these sin re- sinful pre- preoccupations. Now, that's why the question is so important. Because Jesus is actually meant to warn this man to this question, if you want healing, your life is going to change. It may be messy. You may have to pull your, pull your, um, your grip off of things that you don't want to do it, but it's going to expose in you when you get healing the real things that you really love more than God, that you really love more than the healing that is offered to you, the healing that is offered to me. We're so scared of this change, aren't we not, at times? Because when we do this, we, we have to admit that we're not in control. We have to admit that we're actually not the one in control. Now, we see this all over the place in our world today, right? We see this in a culture that has redefined what it means to be self. I'm, I'm very thankful for Carl Truman's new book on the rise and triumph of the modern self. And in there, he talks about how we've got to this concept of self in our world today. Where we, where we, ideas of self are perpetuated based on who is keeping me from being my real self. That's what our concept of self is. Therefore, it's always someone else to blame for why I'm not who I really am. Instead of actually bowing before the king of glory and becoming all that he says you can and should be. 
We see this all over the place. It distorts our understanding of, of our, our, our efforts to, to pursue racial reconciliation because we redefine what it means to be self. It props up the new sexual ethic in our way where historic Christian sexual ethic is really kind of a, an oppressive sexual ethic to the, the social diversity that we have, they want in the world. It distorts our efforts to, of helping the disadvantaged by saying that wealth is really what, someone else's wealth is what keeps me in my chains and my bondage. We just see it everywhere. Again, it's easy to look outside, but let's bring it inside. Inside, the same thing is true. We, at times, if we're not careful, are prevented from the kind of health and freedom that we get in the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us because of these new definitions of self. True self is now defined by who I think I am, and as long as I'm not who I am, think I am, therefore, someone else is responsible for who I'm not. Do you see how that distorts the gospel? Because ultimately, it's Jesus who says who you are. Not you. Not some psychological mumbo-jumbo. Not some culture. Jesus says who you are. That's the gospel. The gospel shows up and, and, and intervenes and interferes with this idea when it comes in and says, shows us how irreparably broken that we actually are and that we cannot be free from these sins. And even more, we actually love it. I know some of us don't want to hear that. Like you love your sin. If without Christ's help, you love your sin. I love my sin. And without Jesus interfering, I'm never going to interrupt that unless he does it for me through the work of the Spirit in some capacity. That's what we understand about the gospel. And when he shows up, he shows us that we need vicarious help for these situations, something outside of us. I can't just look inside of me and try to figure out my own path. But no, Jesus says, I am the help that comes to you. I give my life as a, death, as a, as a penalty on the cross for you to pay for your sin. And I transfer my righteousness to you so that you don't have to live and wallow in your own unrighteousness. And by, more than that, I bear your unrighteousness on me and I go hang myself on a cross. Rome, didn't, Rome held, hung Jesus on the cross and the Jews did too. But let's make sure we're very clear about this. It was God who put Jesus in the dock. Amen. Why? So that you and I could be free. You and I could be free this morning from these things. And so, friends, I, I go here this morning because this question reveals to us what we really believe about the nature of the gospel. What does the gospel actually do in our life? It's not just self-help mumbo-jumbo. The question's huge. So after the question is asked, what's the response? What does it reveal about this man and, frankly, maybe about some of us in here this morning, the nature of the infirmity of our lives? Well, notice that the man doesn't really ever answer the question. Sir, I'm disabled and I I have no one here to put me in the, the pool. Again, he's already kind of deflected away. And when Jesus says, looks at him and he hears his answer, what does he respond? Get up. Walk. I don't know how, if we can really grasp how powerful that was. Get up and walk. And he did. He picked up his mat and he started walking. 
But what happens next and how this man responds to Jesus' question is the most important aspect for the remainder of our time. Because as it was said here, this happened on the Sabbath. And it was a really big deal that you take care of your actions on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to do lots of things on the Sabbath according to Jewish code. Not the law, but by Jewish code. Right? The extra rules that we put around the law. Right? And so the Sabbath is happening, and they come and confront this man about his mat. And these rabbis were reminding him, hey, you remember that uh, you can't do this on the Sabbath. You remember the 39 rules you put about what you should do on the Sabbath? Yes, that's what they had. 39 rules of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. That's not, that's not a joke. And the last one is you're not allowed to carry anything. So how dare you, you dirty, rotten sinner, for carrying something on the Sabbath, even though you've been healed today? Just, just a side note here for a second. How wicked must you be to see the powerful demonstration of God's goodness being revealed in this man's life? And the only thing you got on your mind is, well, he's carrying his mat. But we do the same thing. We, 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 don't, we bypass life change in people's lives because we, we want to hold people to the code of the things we should do as Christians rather than the spirit of them. The things that are good, we should pursue. It wasn't like keeping the Sabbath was not a good thing. It is absolutely a good thing. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, actually, because I think the Sabbath needs to be recovered in the local church. The Lord's Day and, the, and, and how well it, how central it is to the life of the church. But for today's purposes, um, what is most important to us is that we would see how the former paralytic responded to Jesus's questions. And what does he do? Well, I'm sorry, we responded to uh, these inquisition by the Jews. Look what he does. Well, the man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Do, do you get how passive that is? It's just deflecting. What he's essentially saying is, it wasn't my idea. I'm just a innocent bystander who just happened to benefit from this man's work. Somebody come along, told me to pick up my bed and walk, and I did it for the first time in 38 years, so what was I supposed to do? And really, what was he supposed to do? But obey Jesus. Trust Jesus. Only, I only did what I was told to do, so if you have a problem with that, go find that guy. Well, who is that guy? I don't even know who he is. Until later on, Jesus comes back to him, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So what this man is doing, he's passing the buck. He's blame-shifting. He's interested in self-preservation. He's interested in not, he's, he's not able to see the magnitude of everything that has happened for him in Christ. You know what this sounds like? Genesis 3.12, when God finds Adam in the garden after they have sinned, and God says, where have you been? Why, why are you hiding what, is, what are all these leaves? What is all this stuff that's covering you? And what does Adam say? Well, that woman you gave me. Uh, you know, we ate this fruit and uh, felt weird and we knew we were naked and we just had to go hide. And That woman you gave me. He, he, man, he did a really cool little turn there, didn't he? He blamed the woman and he blamed God at the same time. Friends, this is what we do in our sin. 
We find a way to deflect away from ourselves. And, and, you, and listen to me, if this is a pattern you should see in your life, let me suggest to you, it's probably should show you where you need to be repenting of sin in your own life. It's Genesis 3.12, being continually relived in the life of every man, every woman, every child. That the root of this man's condition was much deeper than his 38-year-old malady, wasn't it? That's what Jesus is getting at. Why do you make it, have him help him get up and walk? Because his heart, he wanted to show him through that that his heart was ruined by sin. His heart was ruined by his selfishness. It was ruined by his blame shifting. That that was the real issue behind everything. Regardless if a man ever walked again in his entire life, what was most important was that his heart be clean and his heart be healed. And so it doesn't end there, does it? Jesus finds him later in the temple and he goes to him and says, See, you've been healed. And he gives him these words. So don't go and sin anymore. Lest something more serious happens to you. Really? That's what Jesus responds with. It shows us the real purpose of the healing that he called um, of this man's life. And it was namely this. It wasn't about the healing at all physically. It was about the spiritual healing. It was about calling him out of sin. Look, there's plenty of scriptures in the Bible that point out the fact that we should not be quick to judge any one particular person's suffering that, is, that may be based on some kind of sin in our life. We need to be very careful of that. When you see someone suffering, you shouldn't automatically assume that there's some kind of sin that God's you know, uh, um, disciplining them for, although it could be that. But there's also things in the scriptures where Jesus is very clear. Sometimes it is. Like at the Tower of Siloam, and it collapses, and 18 people die, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So in other words, he said, look, there are consequences to sin. And he's warning this man really clearly to abandon the sin in his life so that, so that a far more serious calamity would not fall in his life. Yeah. There are far, more, far worse things in the world. And I know this sounds hard, but this is what Jesus says, than your, dis, your physical ailments, your physical maladies. And it's not like Jesus is not concerned for that because he does heal the man. But he's more concerned about his heart. Jesus is telling this man, abandon your sin or something more serious is going to happen to you. Namely, judgment for eternity. And so what does this man do? It's telling, isn't it? The man hears this, and, and, and it's like it just kind of, as parents, we always use the word, it goes in one ear and goes out the other when we talk to our kids. That's what happens here, right? He just runs off to the Jews, and he goes, hey, 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 the guy you're looking for, Jesus. And then they go start giving Jesus all kinds of mess, don't they? The reality is, is there's no apparent change in his life. God had been gracious to, one, heal him, but also use it as a means to show him his real need. And he's turned a deaf ear to it. God extended grace to this man, not only by healing him, but more importantly, calling him out, calling him to turn from his sin and turn to Christ. It's truly sad, but it is the baseline of where all of us start. And without God's gracious interfering, we will remain there. Do you understand that? 
This morning, if you're here and you're not in that place, you're not saying, I'm a believer, understand this, is a, this sermon, not, not me, not my words, but the scriptures are a gracious intervention to remind you, you have an option. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now let's, I promised you that we were going to walk through the text this morning and then we were going to kind of then get into some application. I just want to spend the last few minutes of the sermon this morning just really kind of considering what we just studied through the lens of some questions that maybe we could ask of ourselves. You can wrestle with here in this room this morning. Perhaps, hopefully you'll wrestle with them as you leave here today. And, and so I have three bigger questions with several supporting kind of ideas under them. So let me just kind of walk you through those real quick. First question. What are your real infirmities? Do you know them? Are you aware of them? Are they what you think they are, or is it something else entirely? Are you making use of God's... Um, let me say it this way. Are, are you truly aware of the real maladies that really affect your soul? That God heals spiritually broken people with spiritual ends? See, we sometimes take spiritual things in our life, we shove them down so deep, and then we try to do other stuff on top of it so that we can ignore the real spiritual issues that are in our life. But God uses spiritual means to attend to spiritual ends. You have a spiritual condition, and I do too. Do you really know what that is? Can you identify them specifically, these things that you trust in, that you love more than you love God? Are you making good use of God's spiritual means to address those spiritual maladies? And let me just be frank. And we're, and we're demonstrating it here right here this morning with pews packed and people down at the other end of the building. We're making good use of this, but I pray that this continues. Because God, again, uses spiritual means, I mean, sorry, a spiritual end, means for spiritual ends. Sitting under God's word within the community of God is a baseline for those who are pursuing spiritual health. Amen. Let me say that again. Sitting under God's word within the community of Christ is the baseline for how baseline spiritual end that God uses for our spiritual health. This is not just a this is not just a a spiritual means, it is actually more direct. It is the primary means to address those nagging spiritual maladies in my life. And so for me, if someone comes to me and i got an issue in my life and I see that there's this neglect of being part of God's people in the local church, that's the first thing I go to. Not because I want more people in the pews, because I know that something gracious God has given to his people. And that's true of all of us here this morning. That's true of all of us in here this morning. We need to sit under God's word within the context of true Christian community. Not just at home with your little cup of coffee and, 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 and just maybe watching whatever preacher online, whether it's this one or someone else, and hoping that somehow or another I won't change. It doesn't work that way because God didn't design it that way. And I know how much I like, you know how much, how much I like coffee, y'all. All right? But it's not enough. Come here, get your cup of coffee, sit in the room, and let's open the Word of God together. And then say afterwards, encourage one another, and man, God will do some powerful things. We started off with 30-some people almost five and a half years ago. Look what God is doing. And I can tell you countless stories of spiritual health and change that's happened in this congregation, and, and it's been amazing to see. Amazing to see, excuse me. See, friends, I want to give you a really direct but, but yet I hope you receive it as a loving thought. If our association 
with God's people is casual, so will our association with sin be casual. I got 25 years of stories and pastoral ministry to back that up. If our association with God's people is casual, so will our association with our sin be casual. Because God gives us, he gifts the church to you, to me. And it's hard to come clean. It's hard to walk in transparency. It's hard to walk in the light. But he gives us the freedom to do so as we sit under God's word and we live within this family. And I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Test me and see if that's not true of Grace Church. Don't bound my word for it. Test it. I've seen it proven over and over and over again. Sin is real. It is pervasive. And it requires a wartime attitude to fight. And you know where the wars fought? Bible's open. People of God every Sunday. And more than that, saying, Jesus, you're all I have. I love John Piper because that's, he, he, he embraces that entire wartime perspective as it comes to the Christian faith. Second big question. In what ways are you abandoning your sin or have you found other remedies outside of Christ for it? In what ways are you abandoning your sin, just like this man, or are you finding other remedies outside of Christ for it? Whether it's maybe you feel like you're a victim to your sin and someone else is responsible for your hurt and your pain, and there's maybe some truth to that, because we do need to heal from those kinds of things, but eventually we have to turn to Jesus. But what are you, are you abandoning your sin? Are you abandoning yet that, that, that broken understanding of your life and your world? What have you defined as true restoration other than being made new in Christ? Be specific about it. All of us have a picture of what we think, if, it was, if this part of my life was better, then everything would be better. Whether it's our, our finances, our financial portfolio, our relational interactions, maybe a marriage or, or, or whatever, or perhaps it's um, vocational or political ends. What circumstances are you hoping will, be, will be make your life new outside of Christ? And friends, I can tell you as someone who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, that is an everyday battle for me. And I imagine it's the same way for everybody in this room this morning. Third question, and then we'll prepare ourselves for the table this morning. It's the question, isn't it? It's the question Jesus asks. And it's the question we all must answer this morning. Do we really want the power of the gospel to change our lives? It's really the only question. Do we really want the power of the gospel to change our lives? My question, could Jesus ask you this question this morning? Could he ask me this question this morning? Do you want to be healed? Do I truly want to be healed? I can't answer that for you. I can only try to answer it for myself. What will we have to kill in our lives to live under the lordship of Jesus? What will we have to kill in our lives to live under the lordship of Jesus? That's another way of saying that, asking the same question. Friends, it's an important question that every one of us must wrestle with. Because in the gospel, you're not only free from the demands of the law, but you're given wonderful Holy Spirit power to actually embrace the freedom of the law, the freedom of God's commands, and to do it and live in it and love it. See, the law and gospel are not 
enemies. They're intimately wed with one another. If we try to live by the law alone, we can't ever get there. But if we go to the gospel, we see that the law is a good and wonderful thing. But it's not. But Christ is the one who fulfills the full standard of it for us. And so we need to recognize and we need to ask the question, what pseudo-freedom apart from God do we need to abandon today to taste the goodness of Christ? What pseudo-freedom apart from God today do we need to abandon to taste the goodness of Christ? Father, this morning, help us now as we take these questions to heart. We prepare for the Lord's table together. For those who are believers here this morning, that they would be able to draw near to the table, not because they themselves have made themselves worthy, but because Christ, you have made them worthy because of your sacrifice for them. But God, maybe we wrestle deeply with the questions we've wrestled with this morning. May we all be able to be honest about where we are and perhaps as a result of wrestling with these questions, be able to stand more in freedom of what Christ has accomplished for us. May it be so. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.